Amen. We need to be reminded of that so desperately. That the battle is the Lord's. That was the message to the Old Testament church where God said to Israel, stand still and watch the Lord fight for you. And it is also the message to the New Testament church. The battle is the Lord's. And when we fail to believe that, it will lead to certain excesses and errors in our lives. If we begin to forget that Jesus is preeminent, that Jesus is supreme, that everything goes back to Jesus, then we will fall in to the similar troubles of a church we're going to look at for the next several weeks. Turn in your Bibles to the letter of Paul to the Colossians. This is one of my favorite books. There's a number of reasons. Uh, my dearest professor in seminary, uh, he um, called me to cut my teeth when it comes to Greek in the book of Colossians. That was, that was over 35 years ago. And I, and I still cherish my time in Colossians and, and especially reading the Greek text of Colossians. I know I'm a geek, but I really enjoy that. And then I realized that it's been 32 years since I preached through the book of Colossians at Oak Mountain. This is the very first book study I led Oak Mountain through 32 years ago. And I figured it's time to hit that book again. Because not many here were there when I preached this the first time. The theme of Colossians is the preeminence and supremacy of Jesus. And so the theme that we're going to focus on during this series is a Christ-centered life. Keeping Jesus at the core of everything we are and everything we do. And the specific message this morning is a Christ-centered life by getting back to the basics. Specifically, the basics of faith, love, and hope. We're going to learn through this series in Colossians that every single deep question of life has one answer. And it's Jesus. Now I know what some of you are thinking. That is way too simplistic. You don't know how complicated my life is. I'm reminded of the story that many of us have heard. Uh, a Sunday school class with second graders... And the teacher says, class, what is gray and has a bushy tail, eats nuts, and climbs in trees? And one boy finally boldly said, teacher, it sounds like a squirrel, but just to be safe, I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> well, the answer was a squirrel. Jesus isn't the answer to every question like that. But every deep question of the soul, every deep question of the spirit, every deep question of the heart, and every deep question of life has one answer. And the answer 
is Jesus. Now let me tell you why this is so important. Because in a complicated world, when we might be tempted because of the way life is going, that we need more than Jesus. We need Jesus plus something. That's when a belief system called syncretism begins to creep into our lives. Syncretism is a worldview that picks and chooses certain elements of belief from different systems. Colossae was a very diverse city. It was very cosmopolitan. So there are all kinds of religions, all kinds of philosophies, all kinds of viewpoints on politics and behaviors and all kinds of things. And the church at Colossae then was tempted to look at the Christian life as a smorgasbord when you're really hungry. You take a little of that, a little of this, maybe some of that. And as a result, their faith became Jesus plus. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that. You see, the sufficiency of Jesus alone as the answer to every deep question of life was being lost. And so Paul writes this letter on the supremacy of Christ in all things. And in this opening section, focuses on Christ-centered living through getting back to the basics. Now, a couple details. Paul had never been to Colossae. Paul had never met the people that he's writing to in the letter. It was about 60, 60, 61 AD. Paul was actually in prison in Rome. But when, when Paul was in Ephesus, and Ephesus was on the western, near the western coast of Turkey... Colossae is about 120 miles east of Ephesus. When Paul was at Ephesus, before he was in prison in Rome, one of his children in the faith, one of his co-workers named Epaphras, traveled east to Colossae, and Epaphras planted the church. But then Epaphras noticed that because the Colossians were feeling overwhelmed with the complexities of life and began to fear that they might need more than Jesus to focus on, they began to nibble on other beliefs of other worldviews, and they fell into syncretism. So Paul, not having met these people, never having been to Colossae, he writes this letter. And in some ways, this is what Paul was reminding us. The young Christians at Colossae didn't know their Bibles well enough. And as a result, they sometimes were undiscerning with respect to the ideas and beliefs around them. And as a result, when the going got tough and it seemed like the answer Jesus just wasn't enough, they turned to Jesus plus. Jesus plus 
human tradition. Jesus plus cultural norms. Jesus plus a more profound experience of the supernatural by communicating with spirit beings. Jesus plus religious practices sort of used like a rabbit's foot to make life work. See, the question before the house as we study Colossians is what do you look to in addition to Jesus to make life work? Let me put it this way. What makes you irritated? What makes you sad? What makes you mad? Or what makes you glad? What makes you elated? What gives you peace? Only Jesus can give us what we truly need in life. And when we turn to anyone else or anything else, we're turning to Jesus plus and we're engaging in syncretism. Now, that doesn't mean our faith doesn't apply to business, to science, to all those other things. I'm talking about at our core. How are you tempted to make life work with something more than Jesus? That's going to be our focus through this series. We never move beyond Jesus. We just move more deeply into Him. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. Follow along as I read Colossians 1, verses 1 through 14. This is God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, in other words, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
this is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. And he gave it to us because he loves us. And he wants us to constantly fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the beginner, the pioneer, and the finisher and completer of our faith. Let's pray. God, would you please turn our eyes upon Jesus? And God, maybe the little boy was simplistic and silly, but we need to get back to the basics of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come and do that in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So several years ago, I preached a series on the seven deadly sins, and I gave it a really silly title. It was an acronym that used the first letter of all the seven deadly sins. And so the only thing I come up with was peaceagle. It's not even a word. P-E-A-S-A-G-L. P, pride. E, envy. A, anger. S, sloth. Second A, avarice, which is greed. G, gluttony. L, lust. The seven deadly sins. Now you need to know, besides the seven deadly sins, there are also three cardinal Christian virtues. And the three cardinal Christian virtues are faith, love, and hope. So Paul calls us to be more Christ-centered by getting to the, back to the basics of faith, love, and hope. So let's dig in. First of all, get back to the basics of faith in the Messiah. I don't know if you noticed or not, but I purposely emphasized verse 4 and verse 5. Since we heard, so again, remember, Paul, Paul never met these people. He had to hear about. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your love toward all the saints, because of the hope, there's your three cardinal Christian virtues, faith, love, hope. As we look at faith, notice it's faith in Christ Jesus. By the way, Christ isn't a name like Flayheart. okay? Jesus is a name like Bob or Robert, but Christ is a title. Christ means Messiah, the Savior, Redeemer of the Old Testament, finally fulfilled, the covenant of grace being fulfilled in Christ, Messiah, the anointed one. And our faith is to be directed toward Christ. Our faith can't be in anything else. It can't be in anyone else. It can't be in events going a certain way. It can't be in institutions going a certain way. Our faith can only be in Christ Jesus. And this opening section of Colossians, Paul is like, bam, 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 rapid fire, giving us cause after cause after cause after cause to get our eyes off of everything else and fix our eyes on Jesus. First of all, look at his apostleship in verse 1. He says, an apostle by the will of God. Now, normally when Paul says an apostle by the will of God, he's talking about his authority. I'm an apostle by the will of God. You need to listen, not in a boastful way, 
But he's being serious. I have authority here. Well, Paul had never been to Colossae. He never met these people. He wasn't trying to ground his authority. He was trying to relate to them. And when Paul says he's an apostle by the will of God, what he means, he wasn't an apostle by his own strength. He wasn't an apostle by his own wisdom. He wasn't an apostle by his own ingenuity. He wasn't an apostle by his own formula, by his own recipe. You see, syncretism is you start looking for recipes and formulas in addition to Jesus in order to make things work. So Paul says, I didn't look to anything. I won't even look into Jesus. He's thinking of Acts 9 where he was going to uh, arrest Christians and murder them. And Jesus showed up and said, stop, enough, no more. I'm going to love you. And I'm going to give you a love for me. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a love for the world and a love for the church. That's what Paul's emphasizing here. I'm an apostle by the will of God. Not that I'm better than you, not that I know they're more than you, not that I figured out more than you. I'm only an apostle by the will of God. And he's calling us to stop thinking of Jesus plus anything. He's calling us to stay away from the smorgasbord of ideas that are out there and just stick with Jesus. And then in verse 2, he, he says, that the letters addressed to the saints, the letters addressed to the church. We're saints. Now, saints has nothing to do with your ethical goodness here. Trust me, we're going to talk about ethical goodness coming up in the next several weeks. But right here, it has nothing to do with ethical goodness. Paul says he's writing to the saints, meaning those who have put their hope in Christ alone as redeemer they've put their hope in christ's obedient life on their behalf and christ's substitutionary death on their behalf and therefore god declares those who trust christ to be saints to be blameless to be holy to be righteous to be without blemish and Paul, again, is saying, you're looking for things other than Jesus to make life work for you. Go back to Jesus over and over and over. If he can turn you before God into a saint, then he can handle what you're facing now. Then he says that also that the saints are also faithful brothers and sisters. Now, faithful here does not mean that you're good at constantly carrying out the commands of God. Be patient. We'll get there. But Paul's point is too many Christians go there too soon. As soon as someone's converted, we immediately been piling them up with all the Christian things Christian people do. And you know what happens? It turns into syncretism. It turns into Jesus and me having my quiet time. And if I didn't have my quiet time, I've lost my rabbit's foot. And now life's not going to work. So now I've got to look for new things in addition to Jesus to make life work. See, this is how syncretism works works. No, faithful means being loyal to rest in Christ. 
Faithful here means being full of faith toward Christ through the gospel. And there were camps at Colossae that were saying, Jesus is great, but you know, this is good too. Let's add this. Oh, and that's pretty important. Let's add this. And people's faith slowly began being weaned from Christ alone and put in other objects. Now again, we're we're likely not talking here about people who weren't converted. We are likely not talking about people who were in danger of not being saved because they were looking at Jesus plus words. We're talking about people who were already Christians and were starting to add things to hoping in Jesus and believing in Jesus. And that's what led to the synchronism that Epaphras was so concerned about. And then in verse 2, it says that grace and peace from God the Father. Paul encourages Christians who are turning towards syncretism, other things, Jesus plus, that none of those things will give you peace. What are you looking for for peace these days? What in there, what is there in our culture, what is there going on in our day where your peace is being upset? And therefore, you're looking for peace in certain events, occurrences, incidents, whatever. Paul is telling Christians tempted with syncretism, only Jesus brings peace. That's it. Nothing else. A happy marriage, that's not where you get peace. That's a beautiful thing. It's not where you get peace. A satisfying job, it's a wonderful thing. That's not where you find peace. You don't find peace in anything in this world. Only in Jesus. And then in verse 3, Paul gives thanks to God for the Colossians. He's never met them, but he gives thanks to God for them. Now, why do you give thanks to somebody? Because they've done something. Why would Paul thank God for the Colossians? Because Paul is acknowledging God is the prime mover. God is the uncaused cause. God is the one that does it all. See, syncretism says Jesus does this, but I've got to do that. Paul is calling us all back that Jesus does it all. And that's why we give thanks. Matter of fact, one of the characteristics of living out the Christian life is verse 12, where Paul calls us to constantly give thanks for everything in Christ. So actually, this opening section is a Thanksgiving sandwich. There's Thanksgiving at the beginning, Thanksgiving at the end. Paul's saying thanksgiving is key to the Christian life. Because if you're giving thanks to God for Christ, then your focus is remaining on Christ. But if you're constantly searching for something else to make the Christian life work besides Jesus, then you're complicating things. The antidote to that complication is to get back to thanking Christ. Thank Jesus, thank Jesus, thank Jesus, thank Jesus. Yes, I know, it sounds simplistic. 
You know, let me put it this way. It used to be that Christians were called people who were so heavenly-minded they were no earthly good. In other words, their heads were all in the clouds. They never got anything accomplished. You know what Paul would say with respect to syncretism today? We're in danger of being so earthly-minded, we're no heavenly good. We've shifted so much of our hope and confidence and faith and security and safety into things other than Jesus. So Paul calls us back to faith in the Messiah. Then he says in verse 9, he prays that we'd be filled with the knowledge of his will. Once again, looking to faith in Christ. If you remember your English grammar, there's two voices of a verb. There's an active voice where we do something. There's a passive voice when someone else does it for us. This is the passive voice. Be filled. Do not go out searching for things in order to fill yourself. But be filled by God with the knowledge of his will. Faith in Christ. Again, be filled. Christ does it. And then it it goes on to say that it's the knowledge of his will that we need to be filled with. Guess what? He's not talking about what job you can take. He's not talking about who you should marry. He's not talking about making choices, trying to discern God's will. That's not what he's talking about here. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will is to constantly be reminded of God's will for our salvation and restoration in Christ alone. That's what he's talking about. He's saying the synchronistic Christians who are being pulled away from simplicity and purity and devotion to Christ get back by God filling you with the knowledge and understanding of his will, which is you and I constantly looking to Jesus. Then it says in verse 13, I told you this was exhaustive. I just hope it's not exhausting for y'all. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the son he loves. He has delivered. See, Christians become synchronistic when they look at the cultural shifts around them and they begin to want to deliver themselves from the domain of darkness. Please hear me. I am not saying we're pacifists. I am saying today, Paul is saying, stand still and see the Lord fight for you. Which is what he said again over and over and over and over and over. Isaiah is another place. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you said, no, we're going to go flee on our horses. You see what I'm saying? There is a place for don't do something. Just sit there. But the synchronistic elements of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps is everywhere. Everything's got to take us back to Jesus. I mean, this is, this is one sermon where you actually might get tired of me saying Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name. You know, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. 
In one of the books, The Silver Chair, Jill, who's from our world, gets into Narnia through the magic wardrobe, and uh, she's, she's in the woods. She's sort of lost. She's never met Aslan. She sees a bubbling brook filled with pristine water. She's dying of thirst. She goes near the brook, and there's Aslan, the lion, larger than she ever dreamed he would be. And she stops, and she says, would, 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 you, would you mind moving while I get a drink? And Aslan just gave out a low growl. He wasn't angry, but he was telling her, I ain't moving. Come and get a drink. That's what he said. He said, are you thirsty? She said, yes. Well, then come and drink. Then she says, well, do you promise not to do anything to me if I do? And Aslan said, I don't make promises like that. Then she says, well, do you eat little girls? And Aslan says, I have swallowed girls, boys, men, women, kings, emperors, cities, and realms. Now, he didn't say this like he was boasting or he was sorry or he was angry. He just said it. And then Jill said, well, I dare not come. And Aslan said, then you'll die of thirst. And Jill says, I guess I'll go look for another stream. And Aslan said, there isn't another stream. When life gets frustrating and scary and complex and complicated, and Jesus doesn't seem enough, and we want to become synchronistic by adding Jesus, adding something to Jesus, Jesus plus anything or anyone, we're in danger of syncretism. And syncretism will never satisfy your thirst. There's only one stream. Get back to the basis of faith in Messiah. Okay, well, this is great. I've got two points in five minutes. Uh, but let's try. Okay, secondly, get back to the basics of love and the Spirit. Now, this is pretty basic, so I can actually do it quickly, but I need you to hear profoundly. Paul is calling the church to love one another. And that's so important where there's a diversity of ethnicities, of traditions, of things that don't necessarily get addressed by Scripture, where there's freedom. But God says, love each other in the areas that I've given you freedom over. You see, if we start turning to syncretism and Jesus plus something, anything, then guess what happens? We all want people to choose from the smorgasbord the way that we've chosen from the smorgasbord. The problem is not everybody likes shrimp. And not everybody wants fried chicken. And so we're picking Jesus plus this, this, and this. And someone else is picking Jesus plus that, that, and that. Now the problem is we're looking for life to work from this plate. And they're looking to life to work from that plate. And so now we're threatened because they say life works this way and this person says the Christian life works that way and now there's division. 
Wherever there's syncretism, wherever there's Jesus plus anything, there will be division. So if there's division in any place, any family, any church, I promise you there's syncretism. There's people looking to other things to give them life besides Jesus. But where there is love, there's graciousness. I mean, what does 1 Corinthians 13 say? Love is patient. Love is kind. As a matter of fact, that's what Paul says in verse 11. That in Christ we're strengthened for all endurance and patience with joy. In other words... As believers in Christ, we are called to endure difficult people. We're called to be patient with those who I term, please don't make this list, EGRs, extra grace required. Oh, but guess what? I'm probably on lots of people's list as well. See, if, if you're struggling with someone you think is a difficult person, guess what? You might be a difficult person on somebody else's list. Probably are, right? If you think you're having to be patient with an EGR, you're probably an EGR in somebody's life. See, we are called to express love. Love is patient. Love is kind. What's the first fruit element of the Spirit? Joy? Patience? Peace? Kindness? Gentleness? Faithful self-control? No! The first element of the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Love. What did Jesus say? They'll know you're Christians by your stance on this issue. No! They'll know you're Christians by your love for one another. How is syncretism affecting your heart toward other Christians? And again, you may not think you're synchronistic. But I would say if what you are holding to creates a division between Christians over something God's Word allows us to be free, then yes, at some level you've brought in to syncretism. In, in verse 11, where it says to be strained with all power, you know what God says there? We've got no excuse. None of us can say, I can't. Uh, listen, I want to say this compassionately. If you're in a hard marriage, now obviously if there's abuse, we need to help you. You need to get out of that. But if you're just in a difficult marriage, like it's no fun anymore, you can't say, I can't love that person. To, to, to say that is to make God a liar. Because God says right here, you've been strengthened with all power to love. You can love. If someone's an EGR or a difficult person in your life, you can't say, I can't love them. Of course you can. We're never more like God than when we love. Think about that. We're never more like God than when we love. It almost sounds like liberal, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And yet it's not. It's, it's Bible. 
And if I'm really honest, it's syncretism that makes a statement that we're never more like God than when we love sound liberal. After World War II, there was a lot of uh, orphan children, uh, people whose parents had been killed in the war through the bombings, especially in London. And at the end of the war, there were these orphan children running around and and uh, there was no one to care for him. And this American soldier was in a jeep one morning on the outskirts of London, and he saw this orphan child, clearly orphaned because he, he was, uh, you could tell he wasn't cared for. And he had his nose pressed up against a store, and the, the soldier recognized that it was a bakery. And the cook was in there making fresh donuts, and the kid was just about salivating. Uh, and uh, so the, the soldier stopped the jeep, got out, bought a dozen donuts, said, here you go, kid. And then he went back into his Jeep. But before he could get to his Jeep, he felt this tug on his coat. And it was the orphan boy. And he looked up at him with the bag of donuts. He said, Mr. Are you God? You see that? We're never more like God than when we love. Love. The greatest of these is love. Okay? These three remain. Faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. And then lastly, and I promise to be really quick, <clears throat> get back to the basics of hope in the gospel. Verse 5. Because of the hope. Now, think about that. What's the because there for? The because is there because Paul is saying, your faith in Christ Messiah and your love for all the saints is dependent upon the hope that you possess of glory waiting in heaven for you because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See, when we fall into syncretism of our culture or even the subculture of the church, when we fall into anything being a major besides Jesus, then we start putting our hope in things of this world. Paul says our hope is laid up for us, stored up for us in the new Jerusalem. In other words, Paul says people if life doesn't seem to be working with Jesus only, that's because life on this fallen planet doesn't always work. Paul's saying to synchronists who are looking for this life to work the way they want it to, that's your problem. We don't have the hope that this life will work the way we want it to. Our hope is in glory. And that is to give us the strength to say no to Jesus plus anything in a mad effort to get this life to work. Did you get it? It's pretty clear. 
So what are you hoping in besides Jesus? I go back to my questions. What makes you sad? What makes you mad? What makes you scared? What makes you irritated? What makes you glad? What makes you elated? If it's anything other than Jesus, you've bought into syncretism. Now, when hope dies, so does faith and love. That's what Paul says. He says, faith and love flow from the hope that is laid up in heaven. So if our hope is in this life, and we get disappointed and lose our hope, then the first things to go will be faith and love. And we see that, don't we? We see people who have put their hope in Jesus plus, and they're not getting it. And when they don't get it, they lose their love. Or they lose their faith. I've seen people that cancer just didn't kill them. It killed their faith. I've met people who the church wounded. But their hope was misplaced. And the church wounding them killed their faith. Our hope is in glory. And Paul never allows us to think that our hope is in this life. And Paul says, all the world, the gospel is our hope. See, in verse 2, Paul says, the saints in Christ at Colossae. You know what Paul's saying there? Your location just doesn't matter. Does it affect your lifestyle? Yeah, sure it does. But in the grand scheme of things, with respect to faith, love, and hope, your location doesn't matter at Hill of Beans. Paul says, it's your position in Christ that matters. You just happen to be in Birmingham. But don't put your hope in being in Birmingham. Put your hope in being in Christ. Then we could work for the good of Birmingham. But no matter what happens in Birmingham, we never lose our hope. You see how this, this is actually so simple and we've made it so complicated. It's time to get back to the basics. And then in verse 13, he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. We never deliver ourselves from darkness. Ever, ever, ever. Am I saying there's not a place to battle darkness? No. I'm saying, however, that the focus of today's passage are belief systems where Christians have begun to think that it's what we do to deliver ourselves from darkness that makes all the difference. It's not. He transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. If your hope of your inheritance is in this life in any way, you will lose your hope. And if you lose your hope, faith and love are out the door as well. But if your hope is grounded 
what can man do to me? If your hope is grounded, what shall separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Then your hope will be firm. Your faith will grow. Your peace will grow. And amazingly, your love for others and God will grow as well. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in this text, so much we didn't even cover. So Lord, we pray that we will have heard and understood what you, what you need us to. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know Christ, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day they transfer their trust from themselves, their own formulas, their own recipes, to Jesus alone. And God, for the rest of us who've been Christians for years, might we rediscover the simplicity of purity to devotion to Jesus. Jesus, 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 there's something about that name. I remember that song as a brand new believer, and it's true. God, open our eyes. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand to hear the benediction. I'm going to pronounce what we sang. The blessing. Receive it. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord be for you and for you and for you and for you and for you. May the Lord, Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace now and always.